Welcome back to Reality Asserts Itself on The Real News Network. I'm Paul Jay. Gabriel Byrne is an actor who actors respect. Uh, he once talked about there's actors who are brands and there's actors who have craft and Gabriel Byrne is one of the people that have craft. He's one of the actors actors like to watch. Um, he's been in more than 35 films. Um, he produced a very important film called In the Name of the Father, which was nominated for six Academy Awards. And as I mentioned in part one of this interview, and if you haven't watched part one of this interview, I would suggest go watch it and then come back. Um, he's uh, very passionate on the issue of climate change and social justice. And, and such, and we are going to get into those issues, but in, uh, to begin with, as we do in reality, asserts itself. We're telling uh, Gabriel's personal story, and Gabriel now joins us in the studio again. Thanks very much. Thanks, Paul. So, so we left off. You're on your way in London, around 11 years old, to becoming a priest, mm -hmm. um, and you don't. Uh, something changes your mind, mm -hmm. and talk about the arc of deciding this isn't your path and, and sort of coming to a more politically conscious way of looking at the world? Mm. Um, I think that uh, it, it was, it coincided, my time in the seminary coincided with the, the advent of the so-called swing 60s, which was two hours down the road. And I remember at nighttime uh, in the dormitory, I would stand at the window and watch the train going through the woods, the, just these lighted windows going through the woods, and that train was going to London. And I began to think, wow, that would be amazing to be on that train. And I began to really think about that. And you're in a seminary. I'm in a seminary, yeah. Uh, without being hyper-conscious of the fact that, you know, uh, I was having normal worldly thoughts and i remember um of the flesh of the flesh <laughs> yes of the flesh they they brought this uh drama group to the seminary uh, one day um to perform a play and again i suppose talk having talked about my roots in the church in the early days in the church my mother brought me to the theater a lot and to the cinema and here was this play that was performed in the, in the seminary. And it was one of those old whodunits, you know, but the central actress in it was a very beautiful girl in a gabardine uh, coat. And she, in my mind, started to meld with the train to London, the lighted train to London and the play itself. I, I was completely compelled by, the, by, by, by just watching the play and the lights and the actors and so forth. And, um, you feel guilty about this? No. Going to go to hell? No. I, I, I mean, a sin was defined as um, in thought, word, or deed. Yeah, this is an it's impure thought. An here. impure thought. So, you know, um, the idea of sin became absolutely irresistible and um, hugely exciting because everything was forbidden. But you couldn't think anything because even if you thought something, that was as bad as doing something. So there was no way to turn. So. Um, I remember when this woman came out with all the other actors uh, to get on the bus to go home, uh, to go back to 
sinful, exotic, wherever, London probably, um, she turned and she waved. And I thought, she's waving to me and she's telling me something. Because I didn't realize there was like a hundred other guys hanging out the window as well. But um, that was the beginning of my unease. And then I started to talk to other guys who were there. There was one particular guy, they used to call him the Kami. And this guy, even though he remained in the seminary after I had left. Another kid. Another kid, yeah. He used to say things like, did you know that Stalin uh, wanted to be a priest? And that you know, the reason he decided to leave the priesthood was that he went up a hill one day and he cursed God and he said, if you're up there, do something because I'm going to curse you. And if I don't hear anything back, I'll know you're not really there. And that's the day he told me this story. I don't know how true it is, but Stalin did at one stage harbor uh, um, designs on the, on, on the priesthood. Funny, I did that once. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I wasn't planning to be a priest, but <laughs> I, know. I, I said, blow up this mailbox because if you don't blow it up, you're not there. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So there was no answer from for Stalin or indeed for me when I started to... Uh, it's funny how prayer started to f feel empty. I didn't hear any voice back anymore. And I began to, uh, I began to doubt things. And um, I remember uh, this guy saying to me, you know, he said, one of the most powerful figures in religious iconography is the doubting Thomas. The guy who puts his finger into the wound of, uh, wound of Christ. He said, I think you're a doubting Thomas, he said to me. And I started to become uh, disillusioned. And it, it wasn't because I had a, an intense philosophical or intellectual kind of road to Damascus situation. It was because the flesh pots of London, the, the, the uh, football, girls, war the world was calling me in the same way that I had thought God was calling me, except this voice was now much more insistent. And so I came back to Dublin at uh, 15 and I was uh, essentially a failed priest and my father didn't know what to do with me and he said, the only thing you can do now is get a trade. So you'll have to become a, a, a plumber. And I had no idea what, what, you know, what that involved. But he, he got me a job through a friend of his as a plumber. And I found myself, you know, in a, in a big boiler suit with wrenches and hammers and d down, you know, unplugging toilets at 8 o'clock in the morning and thinking, my God, this is my life now. And... Um, uh, um, I saved up, I bought myself my first suit, I bought my first um, bicycle, um, and I started to read. And I guess I started to read because I was looking for myself in books. I, I, I was looking for s somebody who would reflect back to me what I thought was my unique way of, of looking at the world. And if I could find that, then maybe I could see that I was okay. And I began reading, uh, lo you know, local Irish novels. Um, and uh, I graduated from there to, because um, I had been educated in England to I I English literature. And uh, later on, I, I branched out to... Did, did you feel like you'd let your parents down? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. When I came back, I, I, I was... There was a kind of a silence around it, um, 
in that I had failed in some way. Um, my mother never, uh, uh, you know, outright said anything, but I know she was disappointed. And um, I think my father was probably, um, probably happy that it hadn't uh, gone on because I remember the day I was leaving to go to London. Um, you had to get the boat and then a train. And one of the neighbors said he would drive us to the boat. And all the neighbors were out to say goodbye. And there was a fog, I remember. And somebody was saying, well, you know, I don't know if that boat's going to go tonight because of the fog. And um, uh, somebody said, where's your father? And my mother said, oh, uh, he, he's working late. And um, because of the fog, the departure time to the boat was delayed. So my father came back and we were still there. And he said to me, uh, make sure now you look after yourself and right now and your mother will be worried about you and I'm going in. And he went inside into the house and we got into the car and my mother said, have you got everything? And I said, oh, I forgot my comics. And I went back into the house to get my comics and I went into the sitting room and my father was behind the door crying. And What age is this? I was 11. Well, this is when you're heading off to the yeah, seminary. Yeah, when, when I was heading off to the seminary. So I think that he was glad that it hadn't worked out. Because you were back home. Because I was back home. But then you do go to London. And then I went to London. Um, I went to university. And, uh, and then I went to London. Um, I became a teacher first. And, and you uh, taught for seven years? I taught for seven years. When, when do you start to get a consciousness that this isn't just the world that you grew up in in Ireland, and it's not just the world of the church. You say Bay of Pigs crisis kind of asserted itself in your world. But when do you start looking at things more politically? I think it began when I was teaching. Um, and I, I began to question the, the method of, of, of imparting knowledge and what that knowledge actually was and my place in that. And um, I realized that um, what I was doing was basically repeating what had been done to me. I was, I was telling people, this is the way it is, and there's no, other, um, there, there's no other dimension to this. Here are the facts that you need to uh, ingest in order to pass the examination. There was no sense of any uh, 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 encouragement to think critically. Um, you were asked to absorb the facts, and that was it. And the better you absorbed the fact and regurgitated them, the more successful you were as a student. But I discovered there, in, uh, as a teacher, I discovered that my, I used to take my kids to plays and cinema, like my mother had. Where are we now, late 70s? Or? Yeah, that would have been mid-70s, mid-70s. And the kids asked me if I'd start a drama class. I knew nothing about drama. But I understood immediately the difference between those kids in the way they reacted in drama, where the restraints were off and they felt that they could be themselves and they could act out their home lives, their relationships and so forth in the form of drama, was um, a revelation to me. And I understood that they did not like the way they were taught, and I didn't like the way I was teaching them. But in drama, we were all free, and it was wonderful to watch them. And as a result of that, I started to think about drama in my own life, and I left teaching, and I became, I became an actor in, um, 
in Dublin. And after some success there in the theatre, um, I left and I went to London. And I think that in my late 20s, uh, going to London was the beginning of my, I, I, I think, if, if, I don't know what you would call it, uh, waking up or... Putting you, you hit London in or not long before the Thatcher years? Yeah, I... Um, I, I Let me just say, for younger viewers who don't know, Margaret Thatcher was Prime Minister, do you remember the year? Yeah, she was Prime Minister from about 1980 to 1997, I think. Co more or less coincided with Ronald Reagan's presidency, and it's the coming of very conservative government in, in United Kingdom and undoing a lot of the kind of social safety net policies in, in the UK and, and of course, the, the big coal strike. Yeah. Um, it was an intensely political time in, in, in Britain. There were huge social um, political changes then. Um, Thatcher <coughs> was the leader of the Conservative Party. The nearest, I suppose, you'd have here would be the Republican Party. Extremely conservative introduced uh, neoliberal economics to, um, uh, to Britain, uh, was determined to smash the trade union movement and did that with the help of uh, Rupert Murdoch, who um, uh, joined her in, 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 in a concerted campaign to really uh, demolish union power. And, and the, the example of that was, the first example of it was when Rupert Murdoch bought the, um, bought the Sun newspaper, and I think the Times, I'm not sure, but the Sun definitely. And he immediately fired, um, you know, all these people who had worked there for years, and he moved his operations out of where they had been in Fleet Street down to this place called Wapping. And he built huge walls around it and he automated the presses and, and so forth. And he was uh, encouraged and facilitated in this by Thatcher. So um, the next big strike was the union strike, the coal strike. And um, Thatcher understood that if she smashed the miners, who were the most powerful union at that time, no other union would really have any uh, real power. And the, the, the campaign of vitriol against working people at that time was really horrendous. Every single television station or radio station or newspaper that you picked up vilified these men who were losing their... And, and bef as this or just before this, where, where are your politics? I mean, what, what, are your, what are you thinking in terms of these kinds of class issues as you get to London? I never, I, ne I never understood that I was really, first of all, it sounds strange to say, but I didn't know I was really, I, I knew I was Irish, in, obviously, but I didn't know I was Irish in relation to, to another um, group of people, or that being Irish had an identity that um, other people had very, sometimes uh, very um, aggressive attitudes toward. Um, because this was also the time of the, in 1969, I, I, just to fill people in who might not know, was, was the real beginning of the conflict in the north of Ireland and the rise of the IRA um, campaign, uh, which 
they took, the IRA took to the British mainland and they uh, had a, a series of bombings um, around, ar around Britain and it made it very, very difficult to be Irish. Uh, you, you spoke with an Irish accent, you had to be very, very careful because you were associated with terrorism. It's like being a Muslim. Yes, now. exactly. It was n not dissimilar. And so you became acutely aware of your identity. You became acutely aware of your accent, which was something I hadn't been up to then. Um, and um, I suppose I started to wake up there. I, I, I was friends with a guy who was a lecturer in uh, communications. And we used to sit in the pub and watch the coverage of the miners' strike. And he would say, now watch this. Watch the way this is presented. So you'd have the miners shot with a handheld camera. So it was chaotic. And they'd leave in the worst moment, say, of a guy hitting a car with a, with a placard or shouting. And they would shoot them in a particular way so that in some cases they look kind of unruly and, and so forth. And then the news broadcast always ended in a, in a book line studio with the head of the coal board speaking very softly and saying these people are anarchists and they uh, are determined to bring, uh, to destabilize this country by etc. etc. So the police came in and attacked the miners. And I remember going through the underground stations and seeing miners spat on by, by, by people. And I thought to myself, these are guys that were just trying to put food on the table. The newspapers have no sympathy with them. Uh, television constantly anti-union, anti-work uh, anti and class. Um, Thatcher was on um, talking about how law and order had to be, had to be restored. Um, the, the, the other major event that happened there was the invasion of the Falklands, which is a tiny set of islands off the coast of Argentina, Argentina which Britain somehow, I don't know how, but they claimed ownership of these islands. And they were determined that uh, the Argentinians were not going to have them. Uh, I think the Junta, the Argentinian Junta was in power at the time. And Thatcher started a war uh, to get the Falklands back. And the coverage of that, I've never forgotten. Um, there was a, a, a ship called the Belgrano, which was attacked by, by, by the British Navy. And as, as they were going away, they were incinerated by a, a bomb that just, you know, everybody on board died. And the headline in Rupert Murdoch's paper the next day with a crowing Margaret Thatcher was, gotcha. Now, most of the population, uh, now I will use the word, bought into this. Mm -hmm. uh, Thatcher gets reelected. Mm -hmm. um, even amongst the British working class, there's mm -hmm. big divisions, even with, mm -hmm. in terms of the coal miners. Mm -hmm. A lot of people, are, workers, are saying, mm -hmm. you guys are just disrupting, you mm -hmm. guys have it good enough, you're going to destroy mm -hmm. the coal mines, and so on and so on. Sure. How come you didn't? How come I didn't go along? with the media coverage? How, how is it you're critic, look at, looking at this critically? Because I knew what was going on on the ground. I knew people who were involved in those strikes and they were people that I, that I had listened to and I had uh, understood. 
uh, I understood what that fight was about. I, I, at that time, I was even seeking alternative information. I was reading a paper called The Morning Star, which is regarded as the so-called, you know, the communist newspaper of... of and I, I went there to see what these people were actually talking about. Um, and then my friend, who was a communications uh, expert, was showing me how news was presented, how the Falklands War was presented. Um, how the minor strike was presented, how neoliberal economics were, were, being, were, were being put onto people, who was on television, who was talking, and most importantly, who wasn't on television or on radio, and what, not even so much what was printed in newspapers, but what was not printed, and who were the people whose voice you never heard. So he made me very aware of how information was presented, and it was a huge learning process for me because then I started to understand that the real point of education is to get people to think critically. Because that man educated me and I started to think critically about things that I had accepted before. And I realized that in order to come to some kind of an understanding about the way you see the world yourself, you had to be critical about what you were presented with. And you couldn't just, you know, just... Uh, you know, ingest everything that was presented to you. So I started to think critically about newspapers, television, uh, radio, politics, even theatre and cinema. Well, in the next segment of the interview, we'll talk about thinking critically, even about religion and Irish nationalism mm -hmm. and where that leads you. So please join us for the next segment of our series of interviews with Gabriel Byrne on the Real News Network. <laughs>